How's it going, everybody? Welcome back to the Conscious Bodybuilding Podcast. Uh, today we have soon-to-be Dr. Milo Wolf on the podcast. I am reporting to you live from a Starbucks uh, because my mom needed the basement this morning. Really, I think today we wanted to touch on um, asset acquisition, wealth building, um, acquiring uncles as well. And Very good. What's <laughs> What says uh, wealth building like a almost $6 coffee? I fully agree. I'm guessing that your mom had to kick you out of the basement because the basement required deep clean from all the Cheeto dust you've been living around. Yes, Cheeto dust, probably some mix of feces as well, uh, but it's okay. And pee bottles. Don't forget the pee bottles. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I can't get up when I'm playing WoW. Um, I do not get up from my chair, so... Hey, one screen's for WoW, one screen's for uh, various stocks in real time, you know? We on our grind, you feel me? Exactly. I got Doge. Doge pulled up on GameStop. One. GameStop. Hey, don't don't laugh at GameStop. I made a, I made like a $200, I think. No, no, no. D don't say any more, bro. Don't give away the yeah. secrets. <laughs> so um, to get to uh, the, the real meat of this podcast... Um, Milo, how you been? Actually, I'll start with that. I've been good, man. Uh, so I did recently submit my thesis for my PhD. So hopefully, I'll be defending in the next couple months, and then, God willing, I'll be a doctor. Doctor Milo will finally. I no longer have to fraud people into saying, "Well, I'm doing my PhD, so I'll be a doctor eventually." So please trust me. I can actually say I'm a doctor. Yeah, yeah. And I was like, soon to be Doctor Milo will exactly. Um, how you been? But. I've been great, man. I've been great. I've uh, just been training and coaching and trying to learn as much as I can. It's pretty much the process. So, yeah. Reviewing various Starbucks around Las Vegas, doing the whole yeah, tour. Yeah. yeah, we're getting a 4.5 of this one. Damn. Out of 10. Oh, okay. <laughs> He's harsh. He's harsh. If you, uh, you may be able to hear the... Um, the drive-through at some point throughout this podcast. So Honestly, man, your audio is surprisingly good. Did you like bring a mic or something? Yep. yep. Oh, damn. Because I was like, wait, yeah, your good. audio is way too good. That's good, good. <laughs> that's good uh, noise isolation. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> and I was like cars driving by, like tons of various noises. It, but... It's crazy, man. I can honestly only sound, like hear your voice. That's it. Nothing else. Sweet. Yeah, it's uh, the Shure MV7. Hey, same. Same. Oh, really? Hell hey, yeah. gang. Yeah. Nice. Nice. Awesome. Um, so first, I actually wanted to ask you about your time in the States because you were out here recently, you kind of did like a tour. Uh, you went to Colorado first, I think, and then went to like the East Coast ish, Midwest East Coast. Close, close. So I started out in New York, uh, seeing okay. Schoenfeld in yes. Lincoln College, uh, where I'll be helping out with some studies starting in the fall. I'll actually be in New York for a full month in September, uh, which is, uh, as it turns out, quite expensive, but hey, um, so I was in New York for a few days, meeting Brad Schoenfeld. Then I went to Colorado, Denver uh, for the ACSM conference. And I met with people from DDS, Data Driven Strength, and also met uh, Coach Kasim, Kasim Hansen, you know. Yeah. Uh, for some reason, with Coach Kasim, I always instinctively to say Dr. Kasim, but he's not a doctor. Cool. So that's a problem. Anyways, then from Colorado to Toronto, actually, you know, different country entirely, um, where I met with Omar Isof and Jeff Nippard. And then from, and my friend, Dr. Pack, and then from Toronto to uh, Michigan, right? Not Detroit. He, Mike Isretal does, in fact, not quite live in Detroit. 
Um, but Michigan, where I stayed for a few days with Doctor, actually, sorry, Professor Mike Isertel. Um, and we shot some videos, which are coming up on the YouTube channel, I think, at some point. One of them has been is out now. Um, and then from Michigan, flew to Raleigh, where North Carolina, which is where Quick Knuckles is, and stayed with him for a few days, and that was awesome as well. And then, so I flew seven times in two weeks uh, across different states and stuff. So there were some comments on the YouTube video with Mike where it was like, on a scale of one to 10, how stuffed up was your nose? The answer is 10 because I flew seven times and managed not to really get sick, but had a bit of a cold the whole time. So then eventually I flew back to London. But yeah, it was a good trip and I think I made uh, the most of it. Yeah, most definitely. You met up with a lot of people. Um, the One thing I wanted to ask, uh, have you been to the States before? That was my first time. Oh, really? What what Dude. was your what is your opinion of of the United States compared to? Uh, it really varies place to place, right? Like it's uh, the U.S. is not one place right, as much as I, I wish it was for stereotyping purposes. Um, but I think that like you know New York is very different from Denver and what have you. Um, broadly speaking, not very walkable. You know, like everyone drives for a reason because there's not really anything to do if you walk places. You just walk along these really long roads with like huge houses and don't really get anywhere. Whereas in the UK, like if you walk around the city, you'll just within five minutes have like a big store, right? like a multitude of restaurants or what have you. For the most part, right? Like most cities are quite walkable. Um, so I understand now where everyone has a car in the US. Um, the scale of things, like people just really enjoy having huge houses, and especially like in Denver and Colorado and stuff like that, they just have huge houses, and it's just like a big thing. Um, I realized that property prices, and this is really odd. Look at us. Like the third thing I mentioned about the US is property prices. Hashtag grind, hashtag entrepreneur, hashtag signal. Um, but like the property prices really vary, and it's kind of obvious, right? Like in New York City, for example, shit is expensive. But then yeah, absolutely. you can get really big, nice places, like more outside of the cities for relatively cheap prices, like for 500 grand or whatever you get like a 12 square oh, like a 30 square foot apartment in new york but you get something quite nice in other places so that's one thing i will say in supermarkets and i think that this is something that a lot of fitness people care about there's an oddly nice selection of um dairy products like uh, fat-free milk fat-free chocolate milk lactose-free fat-free chocolate milk shit like that but then you don't really have many like refrigerator ready meals that you can just microwave and eat that have good macros you have like three and that's it whereas in the uk like ready meals is what we live on like we have ready meals we have like you go to any store you have like 40 different types of ready meals like spaghetti bolognese spaghetti carbonara like you have anything you want for like three dollars right um so that was a change that was kind of annoying while i was traveling mostly because yeah yeah i didn't have any food um so i subsisted off of like half a gallon of chocolate milk a day to get my protein in <laughs> had to do did, it uh, did mike have the um the kroger uh carb master milk we went to kroger indeed oh. and we got the carb master and um it is crazy the macros on that thing are that just is, yeah. insane like wow incredible yeah yeah i'm lucky enough that we have a where i'm on the um in the southwest and they kind of have some stuff that's like Midwest, they have some stuff from like the South as well, and so we got like fries, which is a a, a Kroger grocery store. So I can get um, Carb Master as well. Kroger yep. is, is one of the best, better chains, though, for sure. Yeah. 
Yeah, no, I got that impression as well. And Kroger was, and that's another thing. Like all the supermarkets are huge. There's not many of them around. Like you have to drive to get the one for the most part. Yeah. But they're tremendous. You know. Yeah, yeah. yeah almost too much stuff. You know. Yeah, that's uh, America. It's the the place of abundance. Indeed. Yeah. Indeed. Bigger houses, bigger grocery stores, bigger trucks for sure. We were talking about that the other day. Very true. Very true. So, um, to get into uh, kind of the research side of things, well, I, I kind of wanted to talk a little bit about um, your evolution uh, with your approach to training. You, it's been about a year since we talked. So, I think first and foremost, it would be cool to talk about um, what the what's kind of occurred with the evidence on uh, lengthened work, lengthened training, um, and uh, lengthened partials as well. Because I... I believe there's been some um, new research in that area so between like now and the last year kind of what do we see with the research on on like the partials yep so i can tell you about a few of the new studies that came out i would say broadly speaking it has been in support of lengthened work and lengthened partials one study was by cassiano and colleagues back in 2022 where they compared full range of motion calf raises to lengthened partials or the bottom half to shorten partials, or the top half of the calf raise. And this was done on a leg press machine. And essentially what they found measuring hypertrophy of the calves in two sites is that on one site, lengthened partials did better than both full range of motion and shortened partials. And for the other site, uh, both full range of motion and lengthened partials did better than shortened partials. So overall, a slight benefit of lengthened partials over full range of motion, and definitely a, a benefit in favor of both full range of motion and lengthened partials over shortened partials. So essentially adding further evidence to the idea that, hey, generally, it seems that, at least in these studies, the more lengthened your training is, and lengthened partials is a way to achieve that, the better it is for hypertrophy, essentially. And that is the first study in the calves, which adds to the overall body of evidence that we have more muscle groups now, whereas previously criticism was like, oh, we have data in the quads a lot. We have data in the biceps and the triceps, but we don't have data in all the muscle groups, and it's possible that some muscle groups don't respond as well. I think that's increasingly unlikely, given the evidence we have now. I don't think there's any like particular muscle groups where they don't necessarily respond the same way. Obviously, it's too early to say for sure, but I think that's generally the case. We have had other studies, like for example, a study comparing incline curls to preacher curls, where it seems like preacher curls are potentially a little bit better for hypertrophy than incline curls with, with a full range of motion, right? And the reason for that is while an incline curl will technically lengthen the long head of the biceps a little bit more by virtue of it um, extending the shoulder more, right? Like Because the long head is a shoulder flexor, when you have your arm behind you, the long head of the biceps is more lengthened. Whereas in a preacher curl, the shoulder is flexed, so the long head is more shortened. And so all else being equal, you would kind of expect incline curl to work better. However, you need to also account for the resistance curve involved. It seems that in the preacher curl, right, at the very bottom of the rep, or roughly when your arm is parallel to the ground, where your forearm is parallel to the ground, is when there's the most resistance. Whereas in the incline curl, the hardest part of the lift is essentially near the peak contraction, or the very top. And at the bottom of the rep, when your biceps are supposedly quite lengthened, there's not much resistance to actually curl against. And so it seems like in this study, since the preacher curl grew the biceps a little bit more, it may be the case that more so than absolute muscle length, like just trying to train a muscle group in its most lengthened position humanly possible, it may be just as or more important to make sure that whatever stretch position you get into, even if it's not that stretched, you make sure that position is pretty challenging. Um, 
so that was an interesting finding. And then I would say the two other studies I'd like to bring up in this context, one is only an abstract and one is only a preprint. So they're not yet published. I don't think that matters hugely, to be honest. I think a lot of people who are not very familiar with science uh, get all up in arms about something not being a published or being a preprint, when in reality, the peer review process, which is what separates a preprint from an actual publication, a published article, doesn't usually add very much on average. So it's not a huge deal. And especially in the case of some preprints, when you know the authors, you know they're um, methodologically pretty consistent and you can read with the methods and make sure they have sufficient detail and so forth, I don't think it's a huge downside. So two studies. One was a preprint comparing the squat to the hip thrust. Um, this was funded by Brett Contreras, so shout out to Brett Contreras, and conducted by Plotkin and colleagues. And when two groups were assigned to different training programs, with the only difference being the exercise being used, so the same sets, reps, intensity, etc., the only difference was one group did only squats and one group did only hip thrusts. What they found essentially over, I want to say like 10 weeks of training or so, is that the gluteus maximus muscle so saw similar growth in the squat versus the hip thrust, but the squat did result in about twice the growth in the quads and in the adductors than did the hip thrust. Importantly, neither the hip thrust nor the squat really grew the hamstrings. We kind of knew this already for the squat because the hamstrings contracting would essentially make the quads job a lot more difficult, which would not work very well because then you can't extend your knees and you fail the lift. But apparently the hip thrust also doesn't train the hamstrings very well because there was no growth in the hamstrings. So even though some people seem to feel their hamstrings and hip thrust a lot, that doesn't necessarily correlate to growth. And this is where another important part of the study is uh, relevant, which is that they also measured EMG, surface EMG, before the study to see whether or not there'd be any consistent relationships between EMG and hypertrophy. And to make a very long story short, there was basically no effect or no relationship between EMG and growth. So you can't just use EMG, like you can't just measure the EMG in the glutes or in the quads or any other muscle group during one exercise and see that it's higher than in another exercise and therefore assume that exercise A is better for growth. It's ultimately just not that simple. Like there's going to be cases where that's true, but for the most part, that's not a solid rationale. I would say I would much rather rely on does it target the, does it lengthen the target muscle and that sort of stuff over that rationale. So some people have gone onto social media and made the claim that that was like a, a super strong study looking at shorter versus longer muscle lengths for the glutes and basically saying, oh, there's no difference. So apparently the glutes don't respond to longer muscle length training. I think that's probably a leap of faith. Um there's a few differences between the squat and hip thrust that aren't just related to muscle length, right? So to briefly touch on muscle lengths involved and resistance curves involved, in the squat, you do definitely get the glutes more lengthened. And the hardest part of the squat is also in a relatively lengthened position. The hip thrust is kind of the opposite, where you don't lengthen the glutes a ton. And the hardest part of the hip thrust is actually near lockout at very short muscle lengths. So... In that sense, this study was very much a comparison of longer versus shorter muscle length training. However, you're talking about a group of beginners who are taking both exercises to volitional failure. So if you've ever taken a squat to failure, like for like 10 reps, it's not a pleasant experience. And I don't think that beginners are as likely potentially to take a set of squats quite as close to failure as they would take a set of hip thrusts quite as close to failure all else being equal if they were being told to take both sets to failure, both exercises to failure. So that's potentially a limitation that they may have gone a bit closer to failure in the hip thrust group. 
The other relevant limitation is probably that in the squat, there are other muscle groups that could potentially give out before the glutes do. In other words, in the squat, the glutes may just not have been trained as close to failure as in the hip thrust. For example, the quads could be giving out before the glutes do, and thus the glutes never get close to quote-unquote muscular failure. And as more recent evidence has shown, there's potentially a case that actually going from, say, three or four reps in reserve for the glutes to, say, zero reps in reserve for the glutes can actually create a pretty appreciably different stimulus, read better stimulus for growth. So that those are some limitations of that study. Uh, it is still, like as much as I point out the limitations, as far as its, it, its ability to compare longer to shorter muscle length training, it is still a study kind of looking at that. So it does still provide some evidence that the glutes may not respond quite as well to long muscle length training. It's definitely possible, right, based on the study. It's just not a study that was designed to look at that particularly or specifically. Uh, and so this is, oh, go for it. Oh, I was just going to say a quick thing on that study. I think some people were criticizing the potential um, depth of the squat. Do you think that was a limitation of the study at all based on your inter interpretation? A little bit. I mean, ultimately, and some people have been super uncharitable on social media and I'll straight up say, like, fuck them. Like, the people involved in the study did good work. They tried their best. Like, if you're going to be uncharitable and accuse researchers of bias, go fuck yourself. Like, yeah, enough. I, I shared one of those, but I, I kind of came back on it after I kind of discussed it. I'm with you, though. I kinda, I yeah, yeah. So, so anyways, yeah, the participants, the researchers did their best to get participants to score as low as possible. And for the most part, they were at parallel or below. But yeah, like on average, they may have been around parallel or slightly below parallel. Um, it does still remain a comparison of long or short muscle length training. So it's somewhat splitting hairs. I mean, it's good to know. And in fact, the researchers eventually provided literally images of each participant squatting for context. And like, if you're going to accuse the researchers of being biased, they're going above and beyond what pretty much anyone does in the industry. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So it's just, it's, it's weird. Anyhow, so it does provide some evidence. But this is where a recent abstract from a conference. So at conferences, people come around and present on findings that haven't yet been published, right? So in this case someone, uh, actually Mayo, uh, the one who, the research group who did the study in the hamstrings, seated leg curl versus lying leg curl, and the study in the triceps, overhead extension versus cable pushdown, that group had published an abstract at a conference in a study on the glutes. So essentially what they did was they compared full range of motion to lengthen partials using the multi-hip machine. So on the multi-hip machine, you can control range of motion pretty well. And they had the full range of motion group go from a neutral hip, or just essentially like zero degrees of hip flexion, all the way to 90 degrees of hip flexion. So a pretty like flexed hip and getting the glutes nice and lengthened. Importantly, the leg was kept relatively straight, which means it wasn't just the glutes being lengthened, the hamstrings were also quite lengthened. The lengthened partial group went from a 90 degree hip flexion angle, so the bottom position for the full range of motion group, to just 45 degrees of hip flexion. So about halfway up. So they were always like, they never fully extended their hips. They went to about halfway up, right? Um, they measured hamstring and glute growth, gluteus maximus, using MRI. And from the abstract, this is all we have for now. It's not yet published. Basically, the glutes grew substantially more. I think, if I recall correctly, like up to twice as much from the lengthened partials versus the four-inch motion approach. And some of the hamstrings also grew more, uh, Notably, the short head didn't, like the short head of the hamstrings, because it, it shouldn't, because it's a knee flexor only. Um, but I think two 
of the hamstring heads grew significantly more in the length and partials group compared to the formation motion group as well. So that is actually evidence, and I would say more robust evidence. Like obviously once it's published, that's a different story. Like this is assuming that both the squat versus hip thrust study and the multi-hip study get published. Assuming that happens, I would view the multi-hip study as more relevant evidence to the longer versus shorter muscle length training debate and the full range of motion versus length and partials debate because it actually used full range of motion and length and partials and because it actually used the same exercise which removes a lot of limitations that could be involved when comparing different exercises. And so overall, like to me, because of how consistent the, the quote-unquote principle of lower muscle length training has been across different muscle groups, the fact that now we have evidence in glutes and the hamstrings as well in the context of hip extension training means that the study comparing squats to hip thrust was probably mostly, like the results of that study, were probably mostly a result of inherent differences between exercises. And importantly, it's worth keeping in mind that the influence of range of motion on hypertrophy is like maybe 5 to 15% at the most, going from like a shortened partial to a lengthened partial. Between full range of motion and a lengthened partial, it might be like 3 to 8%. And so when we're talking about two exercises being done with full range of motion, but one of them involves slightly longer muscle lengths and involves a little bit more length and tension, and the other one doesn't, it might be a difference of like 3 to 5%. And that's a difference that can easily be lost if, for example, one group trained the glutes closer to failure. And so like, I wouldn't take it as super strong evidence, especially in light of all of the other evidence that's come out recently. Yeah, definitely. Uh, one thing I wanted to touch on um, is... So with those training, with, with the uh, subjects in that, that study, and then your meta, um, what was the training age of uh, your meta and then kind of like some of the research as well? And I, I'm not I'm not trying to be like, um, uh, ask a loaded right. question. I actually really want to, I'm curious uh, if you think novelty um, plays any role in the uh, results. Listen, Dylan, you have two options here. I'm either going to call you Hitler or I'm going to call you Lyle McDonald. Which one will it be? You know, how dare you ask questions like those? Oh, man, I don't know. <laughs> it's, it's a hard pick, right? Um, right, it's very, it's very difficult. <laughs> so, yeah, generally, good question. The subjects in these studies are somewhere between completely untrained and, like, recreationally trained. We're talking about less than a year of resistance training experience. Um, now, it's a relevant question to ask, and it's worth keeping in mind. And for some research questions, it probably plays more of a role and is more influential than others. Like, if we're talking about how much volume you need, for example, I would suspect that someone more trained would generally require more volume, and so it's a relevant question to ask, and it's like, because there's a mechanism at play, like, for example, the re repeated bout effect. Um, but in the case of longer versus shorter muscle length training, I can't really think of a mechanism that would predispose beginners to respond more favorably to lengthened training than more advanced people. And so I think it's worth keeping in mind that, oh, maybe there's a chance it doesn't generalize to more trained lifters, but I think it's also like just something, there's like a list of five blanket criticisms. Some people who are being uncharitable will throw out at any study they don't like. Um, like they don't even read the study. They're just like, okay, this is a study that looks at training in some people. I'm going to say the sample size isn't big enough. Or I'm going to say the participants weren't really trained. We only care about really trained people. Or I'm going to say, well, the study was only eight weeks long, even though maybe it was 12 weeks, but I didn't read the paper, so I don't know. Or a variety of other things, or maybe like, oh, but one group was training harder. It's like, no, they, they did their best to match things. Like, There's just a, a list of, uh, hey, you don't like the study? Try one of these critiques. You know? Mm -hmm. So it's... Yeah, because it, you wouldn't, if it was novelty, 
um, even then, it, the, the the difference between like let's say you take a you know untrained trainee and you have them do a full range of motion, then you probably wouldn't see much of a difference between the length and, and the full range of motion, right? If it was like oh because they're just going from you know no training at all to putting the muscle in a length position, there's still a difference there, I guess. Uh, For sure. For sure. And if it was novelty, what you'd see as well is that as the duration of these studies got longer, like if you look at shorter studies versus longer studies, the difference would kind of be smaller in longer studies. And from what I've seen, that's not really the case at all. Obviously, I could be wrong. But um, if that were the case, you would see that the difference between full range of motion, length and partials or shortened partials and full range of motion would just be smaller in longer term studies. And it doesn't seem to be the case. Thanks for addressing that. Try to shut the haters up. Hey, you're welcome. I'm on a podcast. I will answer your questions. Otherwise, this won't be a good podcast. <laughs> um, so, actually, speaking on that, with like the um, the the beginner training and the um, estimation of of RAR, I think you touched on that a little bit. And this is one thing that I see people criticizing still a lot on social media. Um, you see this back and forth of like. Oh, uh, you know, these uh, pencil neck researchers don't know how to train hard. Um, I mean, it just kind of persists. And it's lately I've been seeing it a lot for some reason. Um, and then, um, you know, like um, I've seen one recently that was like, um, you know, research hasn't really taught us anything. And a lot of these criticisms, I don't know, they kind of make me scratch my head sometimes. But um, I would say that, I mean, the last time I had you on, we discussed this, uh, uh, a meta where, um, uh, beginners and trained trainees were um, pretty close in their estimations and training intensity. Um, could you touch on that a little bit? And I, I think there's been a development. I, I can't recall um, yep. in that regard as well. So yep. um, yeah, we yeah, for sure. So that was actually our meta-analysis that we did on looking at how accurate people are at gauging how close to failure they are. So essentially how one of those studies would run is like participants come in and they do a set of say, a set with what they think their 10 rep max is, right? And then after five reps, the researcher will say, okay, how many more reps do you think you have? And they'd say like, uh, five. And then they would continue on and take that set all the way to failure. And then researcher would just note down, okay, well, they said they had 10 reps total, but in reality, they had 12. So they were off by two reps, right? And there was a total of 12 studies that did that, um, that we included in our meta-analysis. And essentially what we found is that people are generally, on average, off by less than one rep in the estimate. So if you think you got four more, in all likelihood, you got about four or five more. So they underestimate themselves by about one rep. Importantly, people are generally really fucking accurate below 12 reps. Like I actually looked back at the results yesterday and below 12 reps, people are off by like half a rep or less. Like it's super small. And that's without the recent data. Above 12 reps, especially around like 20 and 25 reps, we don't have as many studies, so that could be part of it. But people are generally much more likely to underestimate themselves. So you might want to take your sets like three or four reps at least closer to failure than you think you should when you're doing like a set of 25. And the reason for that is probably when it starts burning, when you get like rep 15, you probably don't want to keep going. You just want to end this set and go home. But in reality, you have like 10 more reps in the tank or something. Like you need to push pretty hard with high reps. Um and that was back in 2021, I believe. That's when we published that meta-analysis. Now, recently, I actually had the privilege of speaking to the authors of a few upcoming studies on accuracy or absolute reserve again. And that's uh, Jake, Jake Hammert, I believe, 
from data-driven strength, and they've actually wrapped up a study recently where they looked at whether or not people get more accurate at reps and reserve as they start training with relatively untrained participants. And essentially, untrained and more trained participants seemed similarly accurate in estimating reps and reserve, and they were both really fucking accurate, like from the get-go. They didn't really improve much because they were already very accurate when they first started using the tool. So at least in the context of a lab where people are instructed to train hard, instructed to do their best, etc., people are pretty good. And I actually also peer-reviewed a study that is not yet published on reps and reserve as well, maybe like a month ago, from a lab in Australia. Now, because I uh, I know who's doing research in Australia, like I kind of know who might be involved in the study. Um, but the study was essentially finding the exact same thing. Like it was in actually this time around in quite trained lifters, like with average benches, like average bench one or maxes of about 315. So reasonably tra- well-trained, you know. Um, and they for the most part, there were competitors in bodybuilding or powerlifting in the study, which is interesting. And again, they were extremely accurate gauging how close to failure they were when the researchers asked them during a max outset. So if anything, the more recent evidence has been even more favorable towards people being accurate. But then you have this camp of like, essentially meatheads on Instagram. Like there's a, there was one story by, um, trained by JP, Jordan Peters, yeah. shout out. Um, where someone asked him, oh, well, how do I learn to train hard? And he was like, well, you're going to pay three or $400 per session just to be able to train with some of these top bodybuilders. That's how much they'll charge you because they won't do it for any less. That's what you have to pay. And you just, fl- I don't care, you fly around to different gyms to meet different big bodybuilders with both loads of muscle and you just train with them and you learn how to train fucking hard. And some people really just glorify and mystify failure like it's this magical fucking thing. Like, bro, just put enough weight on the bar, do a few reps, and when the weight doesn't move up anymore and you can't move it even though you try for like a few seconds, you're done. Like, you hit failure. It's not that magical. And some people just insist on glorifying and mystifying it like it's that fucking complicated. Like it's this thing that only the select few can do and not everybody will be able to achieve it. It's like, no, like it's just literally keep going and then you'll just move, the bar will stop moving at some point. Exactly. It's that really simple. But like yeah. and people also glorify like going to that special place before a set. It's like, I mean, you can do that and you might get a rep or two extra out of it. But equally you will reach failure whether you're hyped up or not. Like if if you just continue lifting the weight. Yeah, yeah. Actually that's a good point. Um so do you think like there's is there any notable difference between like being your your um, you know, hyped up uh failure point or like you're just going to the gym kind of relaxed calm failure point like do you think that there's a any special like you know muscle growth effects by going to that place yeah interpretation sure so based on my interpretation my hunch and this is more intuitive than it is research-based is that when you're hyped up and you take a set to failure you might get a bit more stimulus because you get like an extra rep or two but you're also going to get more fatigue so overall set per set the quote-unquote sfr or stimulus fatigue ratio probably stays pretty similar I think that if you only train like twice a week, you may actually get better results by getting really hyped before set to really take it to that special place, that dark place. But otherwise, it doesn't really matter whether you do two sets with hype to failure or maybe like three sets without hype to failure. I think you'll probably get a similar effect out of both, right? Um, so yeah, so people often mention the increased fatigue that comes with getting hyped before a lift and the increased arousal that then causes more fatigue. 
I haven't actually seen any of the direct evidence on the topic, so I can't speak to whether or not there's a lot to that. My hunch is that there's actually not much evidence since the law of like inference or extrapolation or generalization. Anecdotally, I do think getting hyped before a set makes the set a bit more fatiguing, uh, but it also makes it a bit more stimulating. So I don't think it's like I don't think it's necessary to go to a special place. It's kind of potentially almost a preference between do you prefer to do fewer sets and get hyped for each set, or do you prefer to do more sets and not get as hyped for each set? Because the SFR will be similar for each set, but the raw stimulus and the raw fatigue from getting hype might be a bit higher. Yeah, that makes sense. You get more fatigue costs, but maybe more stimulus per se. Yeah, pretty much. Um, one last thing I wanted to touch on with you is uh, the most recently there was a, a study in free print. Uh, I apologize for the music. Loud. Nope. No, no, no. Wow. This is a really good microphone. This I know. Music playing in here. Um, I think I was interviewing uh, Eric Trexler, and my smoke alarm was going off. I was like, "Is there like a fire in my house?" And he's like, "I couldn't hear that at all." I was like freaking out. Anyway, yeah, um, it's so, a crazy microphone. Yeah, it's awesome for it's like two hundred bucks. Anyway, um, so there was a a study showing that there was a nonlinear um, effect of going from was it how many reps in, um, from failure was for I can't remember from all the way from like well yeah oh yeah, yeah that's right because the the bot came from okay indeed but, but the most data is for like between five and zero reps in reserve yeah yeah, yeah. so um, basically just showing a non-linear effect where we thought like hey the, the as you get closer to failure um, you know it's going to be just linearly more muscle growth you know two three two one RAR. Um, but it seemed like the magnitude of effect was a little bit greater for closer to failure. Is that, that kind of what? Yeah, that's absolutely correct. So um, my question to you is like you, we kind of had some back and forth and, and you were like, hey, like on average, I think um, I might be, you know, training a little bit closer to failure based on this. So, so kind of can you go over your interpretation of it and what you've done a little bit differently in your training as a result? For sure. So my interpretation of this study I won't touch on strength because strength is for losers. Um, with hypertrophy, like basically training closer to failure led to more hypertrophy. And the researchers looked at failure in two ways. When you think about failure, there's kind of two kinds of failure, right? Broadly speaking, there's a relational failure, which is when you end a set, when you either kind of don't want to finish a set or when you think you can't do another rep, right? So for a bench, for example, you do your last rep, it's a really hard rep, and you're like, I mean, I could try another one, but I don't think I got it. So let me end the set here. Then there is momentary failure, which is when you actually try that rep, you fail it, and you have to do the role of shame, and then you get no pussy for the rest of your life. It's done. It's over. Um, so those are the two types of failure. And they distinguish between those two. And they looked at how does growth change as we go from, say, 10 reps in reserve, or even 20 in this case, all the way to volitional failure, so stopping a set when you don't think you can do another one, all the way to momentary failure, which is actually failing your rep. And it seems like as you went closer and closer to failure, there was not a linear relationship between how close to failure you go and growth, but actually a nearly exponential one as you get closer and closer to failure. So actually, like Arnold once said, those last few reps before failure, yeah, they're really important. They, they're make or break, it seems. Um, so going from, say, seven reps in reserve to five reps in reserve, you do see an improvement in muscle growth, but you see a larger improvement in muscle growth going from two reps in reserve to zero. That slope kind of increases. Now, there was even greater muscle growth going from volitional failure to momentary failure. So going from ending a set when you don't think you got another one 
to actually trying that last rep and failing it. That Even that seemed to increase muscle growth even further and actually quite a notable improvement in growth as well. And so for me, really, and the effect sizes we see, like going from about five reps in reserve to momentary failure, roughly doubled the growth you saw. So per set, right? So pretty notable improvements in hypertrophy. And for context, these are actually about the same or larger effect sizes than you see going from, say, five to 10 sets a week per muscle group to, say, 10 to 20 sets per week per muscle group. So actually quite a notable improvement in muscle growth. And that's on par or greater than some of the volume-related increases in hypertrophy you see. So like when people discuss nowadays whether you should add sets week to week or train closer to failure, I think it's just worth keeping in mind that the effects as we see here are actually quite large. And so for me, really all this has meant is that especially when you look at the most recent systematic review and meta-analysis on volume, you see that the highest volume groups above 20 sets only really did better for one muscle group out of three. And for two other muscle groups, for the triceps and biceps, if I'm not mistaken now, um, 10 to 15 sets actually worked best, I believe. So relatively moderate volumes worked better for two out of three muscle groups. And for one muscle group, high volumes worked best. And these are in studies where people rest like a minute or two maximum between sets. In practice, you probably rest a bit longer, and longer rest times do seem to be better for hypertrophy. And so you can probably adjust those numbers a little bit downwards anyways, in that sense. And so when you combine the fact that volume passed about like 10 or 15 sets per week per muscle group doesn't seem to reliably increase hypertrophy. And again, those numbers are adjusted for the fact that you probably rest a bit longer than the people who do these studies. And the fact that training closer to failure really seems to increase muscle growth to a pretty meaningful extent. I kind of think that you're best off for hypertrophy. Generally, starting an exercise with about two reps in the tank on your first set, and then gradually pushing closer and closer to failure, such that by your last set of an exercise, you're close to failure. For exercises where you can't safely fail, I would take it to volitional failure, like a bench press without a spotter. I would just end it when like the next trip, I'm like, eh, maybe get it, but let's not risk it. Whereas for exercises like any sort of row, any sort of pull down, any sort of machine chest press, I would actually go all the way on that last set where I actually fail a rep despite my best intention to complete it. And that works really well. The reason I wouldn't just go to failure for all sets is because it does seem to be the case that volume mode or how much weight you lift or how many reps across a given session, like within such constraints, right? Like you can't just do uh, high rep leg presses because you can load up that leg press like crazy and get a lot of volume mode. That's not going to lead to more growth, unfortunately. But within a given exercise, within a given number of sets and a given rep range, et cetera, more volume mode does lead to more growth typically. And you can kind of view that as because as being because volume mode is essentially a proxy for tension, right? Like how much volume mode you get within a given exercise, within a given session, is essentially the dose of tension you're applying to a muscle. And tension is, so far, the strongest candidate we have for what causes hypertrophy. And so if going to failure in the first set interferes with subsequent sets and the performance on those sets and thus reduces overall tension that you're able to accrue across an exercise in a session, that's probably a bad deal. And in fact, we have evidence on rest times where it seems like the rest time between sets doesn't seem to matter nearly as much as the impact that has on volume mode. So essentially, the relationship between volume mode that stems from resting not enough time, for example, on hypertrophy is quite potent. So if you don't rest enough time, your performance takes a hit, which means overall tension is lower, which then leads to more, less hypertrophy. So maximizing your volume mode within like the same exercise, again, don't just do 30 rep leg presses to maximize your volume mode. That's not going to help. 
Um, that seems to be important, and thus I wouldn't take all sets to failure, if that makes sense. Yeah, so um, actually I was kind of curious on on a, on a programming part. So you say, okay, don't take all sets to um, this volitional failure, uh, so where you fail rep, like you can't create another one, right? Momentary failure is when you actually try rep and you fail in the moment. Volitional is when you stop the set when you can't do another one. So let's say it's like your last week of an accumulation. Would you then maybe take all sets to failure, or would you say like do momentary for most of them and then volitional in the last one? That's a good question. Now, with the data we have on failure, at least in people who are acclimated to it or not used to it, does suggest that it causes more fatigue, right? So you don't want to just take every set to failure because it will probably cause more fatigue and negatively impact volume mode. I do think the week before deload, you may be able to take it a bit closer to failure. I still wouldn't take every set to failure because that will like, if you've ever taken the first set on excess to failure, you'll notice like the rest of your sets are shot, you know? And there does seem to be a pretty tight relationship between how close to failure you go and how much fatigue it causes. And in fact, it may be the case that like going from say five reps in reserve to four causes a little bit more fatigue. But going from one reps in reserve to zero causes substantially more fatigue. That seems to potentially be the case. And so it's not just that you get substantially more hypertrophy, but also substantially more fatigue. Now, whether or not the trade-off in fatigue and stimulus from going all the way to failure consistently is worth it is unclear. For the time being, I would generally stick to about two reps in reserve on the first set, all the way to failure on the last set, and potentially go from, say, one rep in reserve, and then all the way to failure on the last week of a men's cycle. Because by staying one rep in reserve, you're still able to have a lot less fatigue than you all the way to failure for every set. But you do get that additional hypertrophy that hopefully is beneficial given that next week you'll be able to get anyways and you don't need to worry about fatigue. And so based on your interpretation, due to the magnitude of, um, of effects for going, um, due to the magnitude of effect from going um, closer to failure, you would say that potentially limiting, um, my, my, okay, I guess my criticism, or not criticism, but um, say, going closer to failure might limit potential weekly volumes, I guess. So you're saying that you think, based on your interpretation, the magnitude of effect from going closer to failure is greater than accumulating more volume. Thus, you should probably generally bias going closer to failure than trying to accumulate more volume. So Pretty much. I think what you need to realize is like with volume, the relationship between volume and growth seems to be relatively linear. And past about 10, 15 sets per week for muscle group, again, those numbers are kind of adjusted for rest times being longer in practice. You don't see a ton of improvement in hypertrophy, right? Especially for some muscle groups, you straight up don't see any, like based on the latest systematic review on as many studies as we have. For hypertrophy and going closer to failure, on the other hand, it does seem to be actually more than linear. And we actually have more studies on going closer to failure versus not than we do on volume, for example. Um, so if anything, it's a more robust finding potentially. What I'll say is that like, if your volume is in a good place, like 10 to 15 sets roughly per week per muscle group, I would generally prioritize training closer to failure. So for example, two to zero reps in reserve. If you're doing both of those things and you're still recovering just fine, I would say generally you can try taking sets a little bit closer to failure earlier. So you can go from say one rep in reserve all the way to failure if you're still recovering just fine. Um, or you could try adding volume. I would still generally bias towards going a bit closer to failure for the time being for the reasons I mentioned. Um, I also think that, and this is more of a hypothesis, 
unfortunately we don't have a study on this yet, and I think that will be a really important addition to the literature, is while you do see more fatigue from going closer to failure, I do want to what extent that would be attenuated by acclimation or being used to it, essentially. The repeated bout effect is pretty big. It's a big thing, right, for resistance training, and I suspect that would probably apply to a good degree to training to failure as well. And it's certainly, like, from my experience and from some of my clients and some of the people who've been going a bit closer to failure now since this data, it seemed to be the case that, like, initially you get a bit more sore for sure and their performance is a bit, like, shaky. But then after a few weeks, it's pretty robust. And actually, this is, like, this is an anecdote, but it's an anecdote that's a little bit better than most anecdotes, I hope. So we're running a study on the upper body, um, comparing four range of motion to, like, impartials. And in that study, all sets are taken to volitional failure, hopefully, right? Like we supervise everything with videos, et cetera. We tell people, hey, you need to train harder. Or at the very least, they're training quite close to failure. And interestingly, almost everyone has reported seeing some of the best growth in their life. And on average, the amount of factory mass gained over eight weeks is two kilograms or about four and a half pounds. Like it's robust growth considering it's about like 10, 15 sets per week per muscle group and all of them taken to failure. Like that's really good growth over eight weeks. Um, so that's like a, that's an anecdote. I don't I don't say that's uh, worth much, but I think it's it's been interesting like firsthand seeing that when people train really close to failure, even taking every set to failure for eight weeks, they see some pretty robust hypertrophy. And that was even the case for me because I took part in the study as well. And I, even I saw like really robust hypertrophy. I was like, huh. And this was before these results came out. And I was like, huh, that's kind of interesting. But I didn't really think much of it. But in light yeah. of these study of the study, it makes a bit more sense. In, in to touch on the uh, repeated bout effect, do you think that? it's possible that the magnitude say someone can adapt to that style of training and become um it'll be less fatiguing for the cost of going closer to failure do you think the magnitude of stimulus could potentially be adapted to as well sure so the repeated bout effect mostly applies to muscle damage and muscle damage related stuff um i think novelty with regards to hypertrophy is much less well substantiated than people realize like, I know it's it's a principle that some people swear by. Um, with regards to novelty causing more muscle damage, that's pretty well established. Like, if you put someone through a downhill sprinting protocol for the first time ever, they're going to get fucked up. Um, but with regards to novelty, like, replacing exercises, for example, that's going to cause more hypertrophy, that's a bit more tenuous. Like, we don't have much, if any, direct data on that. The best I can think of is data where adding a little bit of volume relative to your baseline improves hypertrophy relative to the same and same, right? Like, adding, this is one study where they added... They either put people on a given a set volume or they asked them, okay, how many sets do you usually do? And added, I believe, 20% to that. And they saw that the group that added 20% to their usual volume grew more. So that's kind of evidence for the fact that, hey, novelty as far as overall dose of training goes might increase hypertrophy. But overall, like as far as changing exercises or going closer to failure or not, novelty is not very well researched like in that sense. Um, I think that the repeated bout effect would definitely or very likely influence how fatiguing trained failure is. But I'm not sure if it would influence how stimulating it is. And that's because the mechanisms underlying why going to failure is better for growth probably aren't really novelty sensitive. It may just be like going closer to failure, for example, either you get more overall volume mode because you're doing more reps with the same weight, right? So you just do more volume mode, more tension, and that's good for growth. It may also be the fact that as you go closer and closer to failure, the higher threshold motor units, like the faster twitch units, uh, faster twitch muscle fibers get recruited, produce plenty of tension, and that's good for growth. It could be a combination of those, those two things, and that's most likely explanation. And in fact, to tie it back to the lengthened research, I think part of the reason why lengthened training might be a bit better for hypertrophy, and only part of the reason, 
is because it allows you to end the set a bit closer to muscular failure. If you end the set when you fail a four-inch motion rep, you may very well end the set when you like you fail in a shortened position. And that's like that's that was a hard set. But if you end the set when you actually fail in a lengthened position, that becomes a lot closer to true failure, or you did a lot more work overall typically. And so actually doing lengthened partials could be a way to just take it closer to failure overall. Um and I think that this explains part of the benefit of length and black in general, but not all of it, because there are some aspects of length and hypertrophy, quote unquote, that wouldn't be explained by this. For example, you consistently see greater distal hypertrophy with lengthened work versus shortened work, and that wouldn't be explained by just going closer to failure, unless going closer to failure somehow causes more distal growth, which we have no evidence on. So, Yeah, well, uh, Milo, I want to be respectful of your time. Um, if you could, uh, based on what we just talked about, could you give kind of some general recommendations around length and work volume and relative effort, or maybe generally how you um, would potentially go about learning that if, if it's possible to do in like a couple minutes, if not, no it's crazy because like people give whole ass workshops about this, <laughs> like full day workshops about like, oh, yeah, how to yeah. program. Um, so with length and training, I would say I would generally prioritize doing it on like the back, the side delts, the biceps and stuff like that, that usually don't get a ton of love in the stretch position otherwise. Um, I would typically recommend lengthened partials as a standalone. You could also extend your full range of motion sets by instead of stopping the set when you get fatigued or when you hit failure with a full range of motion, just keep doing lengthened partials or about half reps in the stretch position for that exercise. With regards to training to failure, I would generally start most blocks around two to zero reps in reserve. So start an exercise with maybe two reps in the tank, and then as your sets go on, say by set three, for example, if that's your last set, on set three, take it all the way to failure. That could be volitional failure or momentary failure. On an intro week, like if you're right after a deload and you feel a bit detrained, you could take it from, say, three reps in reserve to one rep in reserve instead, just to kind of get back into things. And then the week before a deload, you could potentially go from one rep in reserve to zero reps in reserve or all the way to failure, because there is more hypertrophy to be had by training closer to failure in all likelihood. With volume, I would typically start most muscle groups off around 10 to 15 sets per week for muscle group. And importantly, to actually circle back real quick, in these metanoses, they also account for indirect volume, right? So like a bench would count towards triceps, chest, and front delts. And so if you're counting volume as like direct sets only, actually those numbers need to be adjusted down ones even further. So 10 to 15 sets, if you're counting sets as direct work only, or maybe even a bit lower than that, is probably a fine starting place for hypertrophy taking most sets, as I mentioned, to about two to zero reps in reserve. And then if you're recovering week to week just fine, like your performance is improving steadily, you're not getting super sore or anything, then I would say you can try adding either a tiny bit of volume in, like maybe an extra set here or there, or preferably, to be honest, maybe train a bit closer to failure. Maybe start your exercises at one rep in reserve rather than two reps in reserve. Thank you for the workshop, Milo. Um, so you have an app coming out sounds like right? eventually awesome post. eventually indeed um, I, I imagine that it's going to be have some of these parameters programmed in right based on like yep exactly yeah. yeah and that's been part of the effort with that is that we have updated the app like the the workings of the app as more evidence comes out like we're very much keeping it up to date like for example previously it was more so focused on volume like volume periodization and stuff like that now it's a bit more focused on reps and reserve periodization so it's very much up to date with the evidence it's going to be, to be honest, from what I've seen in the market, uh, far beyond anything that there is. Like, it's not even close. 
um, just in terms of like it is not template template based whatsoever. It doesn't use a base program and then adjust like number of sets or something. It literally generates the program from scratch based on each individual question. So like you know, the first step is like okay, how many days a week can you train? Three, cool. Okay, um, how which days are those? Okay, those days, cool. How much time do you have? Okay, well we're gonna prioritize either time efficiency for exercises selection or say just overall effectiveness with exercise. Okay, what's your goal? Muscle growth, strength, power building. Okay, we're going to prioritize certain categories of exercises in that case. Are there any exercises that you really want to do? Sure, we can select those. And then, are there any muscle groups you want to specialize on? Cool, we can specialize those, which will impact exercise order, which will impact volume, which will impact reps and reserve, which will impact frequency. Like, a lot of thought goes into it. Um, it literally generates the program layer by layer based on all your answers to give you something very individualized that then gets adjusted week to week based on your feedback as far as session difficulty goes. Like if a session is too difficult, I might adjust it to make it a bit easier, et cetera, et cetera. So it's been a huge pain he has to make. Like it's been a lot of work. We've been working on it since December, 2021. So like over a year and a half now. Um, but it's comfortably, from what I can tell, the best it's out there. I imagine when some new research comes out, you're like, oh shit, here we go. Oh, that's the thing. That's the thing. So we've set it up in a way that like, so for example, the way it recommends exercises is based on like objective parameters. Like, does it place a target muscle group in a certain position? Yes or no. Does it put tension on that muscle group in a certain position? Yes or no. Does it uh, take the target muscle group, for example, the biceps and the pull-up or the back and the pull-up, does it take that muscle group close to failure? Yes or no. Those sorts of answers, right? It takes all of that into consideration as, long, as well as our own ratings of how effective we think it is to then give it a score, essentially. And exercises for each muscle group are sorted by that score. And that score could be time efficiency, it could be overall effectiveness, a variety of things. So it doesn't just give you a list of exercises, it also tells you which ones to do based on the most recent evidence. And actually the scoring is something we update all the time. Like for example, now we updated it based on the lengthened research, where now the lengthened component of an exercise plays more of a role. And we can update that as we go along. And so it'll be like the most up-to-date thing out there comfortably as well. I look forward to that. Um, well, Milo, uh, you've been doing lots of content, lots of work. Where can people find you? Yep, for sure. So first of all, since we just talked about it, if you're interested in the app, check out myoadapt.com. That's myo, like muscle, M-Y-O, adapt.com. And you can sign up to get notified when it launches. As far as my own stuff, I have been more active on YouTube lately. I've been making a lot of YouTube content. So if you want to find that stuff, you can search Wolf Coaching. That's my last name and coaching on YouTube and you'll find me there. I've been posting two informative science-based videos every week. So hopefully you find it informative. It's kind of like I'm aiming for a cross between renaissance periodization style and like jeff nippert style because uh, oftentimes like jeff cites a lot of studies and it takes like months to do a video and mike doesn't cite much direct evidence usually so i kind of like go between the two um and yeah if you want to find me on instagram you can find me at wolf coach and finally if you want to find my research you can find that at if you just type in research gate my wolf and for any sort of information stuff uh for my newsletter for coaching you can find that at wolfcoaching.com I'll make sure to link all that in the description. Milo, thank you for all that you do. You've helped me tremendously as a coach, and thanks for always being uh, open to, to talk and stuff. Thanks for having me, man. It's been great. Yeah. Yeah, sure. right, well, I'll see you soon. Have a good day, okay? See you soon, man. Take care.